This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're in the series Cursed Hollywood, where I tell you stories of Hollywood productions that seemingly are cursed with bad luck for their creators and stars. This time, the curse begins on the set of a horror film and seems to follow several of its stars throughout their lives and careers. I've had many requests to tell this story, thanks to all of you who sent me the suggestion. This is the story of the Poltergeist Curse. In June 1982, the supernatural horror movie Poltergeist was released. The film, written and produced by Steven Spielberg, told the story of a fictional family, the Freelings, who moved to a new house located in a Southern California suburb. Stephen Freeling, a real estate developer, played by Craig T. Nelson, and his wife Diane, portrayed by Jo Beth Williams, have three children. Teenage daughter Dana, played by Dominique Dunn, young Robbie, played by Oliver Robbins, and their youngest, Carol Ann, played by five-year-old Heather O'Rourke. Little Carol Ann is the catalyst for the story of a normal American family who becomes terrorized by a malevolent spirit present in their home. One night, Carol Ann awakens and finds herself compelled to enter the living room and stare into a television set that is displaying a static pattern, as the broadcast had ended for the night. Yes, that actually used to happen before there was 24-hour-a-day programming. Talk about horror! It is from the television set that an apparition first appears to Carol Ann, in the form of a ghostly hand. As it does so, Heather voices the famous line that would send chills down the back of filmgoers that summer and into perpetuity. They're here! Unexplained phenomenon begins to occur in the Freeling home. Furniture moves on its own, silverware bends, cabinets open and close, and Diane gets pulled across the floor by an unseen force. At first it's merely strange, but it will soon become dangerous. A tree outside Robbie's window breaks the glass, and then it comes to life, grabbing the boy and snatching him up. As his parents come to Robbie's rescue, another force creates a wind tunnel in the home that sucks Carol Ann through her bedroom closet and into another dimension. The family searches everywhere for the little girl but cannot find her. Later, they will hear Carol Ann's voice coming through the television set where she is trapped. The Freelings contact a team of paranormal researchers and a psychic medium to try and get rid of what they are told are poltergeists. Carol Ann, they say, is trapped in another dimension by these poltergeists. Poltergeists are supernatural entities that make their presence known through the use of loud noises, knocking, moving objects around, and even by physical contact. The psychic must try and make contact with these spirits to free the little girl. The researchers witness many examples of paranormal activity while in the home. One of the team members, Ryan, played by the actor Richard Lawson, remains behind to try and help the family. Steve Freeling is informed that the housing development where his home is located was built over an old cemetery that had its coffins dug up and moved to other locations. He starts to wonder if building over these burial grounds has disturbed the spirits. A psychic medium played by Zelda Rubinstein who also claimed to be psychic in real life, arrives to do a cleansing on the house and, with the help of Diane, bring Carol back through the portal. They are successful, but a malevolent spirit is angered and now seeks to destroy the family. 
In one of the final climactic scenes, it is discovered that the coffins were not actually dug up and relocated, but the housing development had just been built on top of them when corpses begin erupting from the ground. Diane has to battle with skeletons in the freshly dug hole for the swimming pool in her backyard during a torrential downpour. Many of the movie scenes are dramatic and visually chilling, including people being pulled up walls to the ceiling, demonic toys that come to life, and walking corpses set on terrorizing the family. During and after the filming of Poltergeist, the movie and its stars would be plagued with terrifying accidents and tragic deaths. The reason for the curse over this film franchise is still debated to this day. Of course, those who are more superstitious in nature say that the mere subject of the film, diving into the supernatural, would contribute to the curse. But others point to different factors that may have played a part. The first would simply be perhaps a clash of egos, but the other would be downright creepy. By 1982, Steven Spielberg was already one of the most accomplished and successful of all American directors, having directed the blockbuster Jaws in 1975, Close Encounters of the Third Kind in 1977, and Raiders of the Lost Ark in 1981. Spielberg was already at work directing E.T., The Extraterrestrial, and a clause in his contract forbade him from directing another film while E.T. was still in production. Although he had written Poltergeist and was also named its producer, another director had to be found. Spielberg asked Toby Hooper to direct. Hooper had previously worked on horror films The Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Funhouse and the television movie based on the Stephen King novel Salem's Lot. But several people on the cast and crew of Poltergeist have said over the years that Spielberg was the de facto director of the film. Spielberg insisted that the film was a collaborative effort between himself and Hooper, with Hooper doing the bulk of the directing work. Later, however, Spielberg would contradict himself to writer Douglas Brody, who was working on a book about Spielberg's films. Spielberg told Brody that Hooper, quote, wasn't a take-charge sort of guy. If a question was asked and an answer wasn't immediately forthcoming, I'd jump in and say what we could do. Toby would nod in agreement, and that became the process of collaboration, unquote. After this statement and others like it came to light, the Directors Guild of America opened an investigation to determine if Spielberg's comments weren't undermining Hooper's official credit as the film's director. Spielberg later issued an apology to Hooper, saying that the press had taken his comments out of context. He wrote in his letter, I enjoyed your openness in allowing me as a writer and a producer a wide berth for creative involvement, just as I know you were happy with the freedom you had to direct Poltergeist so wonderfully. It all sounded good in the press, Spielberg gave the more junior director credit for being in charge of the film, but others would say that when Spielberg was on set, as happened often, he would take over. Could this have led to tension and possibly bad blood that would taint the whole production? Some say yes, some say no. I guess it depends on who you talk to. Toby Hooper passed away in 2017, and the debate still continues. But there was one decision that was definitely made by Spielberg, according to some, including actress Jo Beth Williams. This decision would be credited by most as the beginning of the poltergeist curse. In one of the most terrifying scenes from Poltergeist, Jo Beth Williams as mom Diane ends up in the muddy pool water. 
Suddenly, skeletons start popping up around her as she screams in horror. This would be frightening enough, but later, when the actress found out what Spielberg had really been up to in that scene, she was shocked. In 2015, on Williams Reddit AMA, she was asked about working on the film Poltergeist. She described filming the skeleton scene, saying, It was physically very hard to work on Poltergeist, because I had to spend a lot of time in the mud and goop, and so it was pretty hairy physically. I also hated working in muddy swimming pools with skeletons around me. When we were shooting, I thought the skeletons were fake. I thought the prop department made them. But later, I found out they were real skeletons bought very cheaply. That really grossed me out. Spielberg had made the decision to use actual human skeletons that could be purchased more cheaply than realistic plastic ones. As Williams later said, the cast did not know this until much later. It would appear that the director didn't want to freak out the actors. But having real human remains as part of the film props is now cited as the reason for the bad mojo that led to so many bad things happening on the set and tragedies that later befell cast members. One of the most bizarre of these stories happened during the filming of another frightening scene in the movie. I think Spielberg must have thought to himself, hmm, what's a common fear of many people? Clowns? Dolls coming to life? Why not combine both? And that's just what he did in this super creepy scene. Oliver Robbins played the role of the Freedling's young son, Robbie. In one scene, he is pulled under the bed by a clown that comes to life. The prop used in the movie is an animatronic doll, and ugly as hell, I might add, that has been created to be robotically manipulated during the scene. When the director called action, and Spielberg was on the set on this particular day, the clown doll was switched on. It grabbed Oliver around the throat but it gripped him much tighter than it was supposed to and wouldn't let go. Oliver was actually being strangled by the doll. Panicking, the boy yelled out, I can't breathe! At first, Spielberg and Hooper thought he was just ad-libbing and instructed him just to look into the camera. Spielberg then noticed that the boy was turning purple. He ran onto the set and pried the doll's arms from around the boy's neck. In an interview Oliver Robbins did with IconsOfFright.com in 2008, He said this about his near-death experience. That contraption got caught around my neck. I was in a tight, confined space under the bed. And it's almost like a car accident. You know how a car accident happens so fast? You don't remember, but if you don't act, something's going to happen? Well, Stephen saw that, probably in the video assist, and he pulled me away from it. Who knows what might have happened otherwise? It was very fast, and I don't think anything would have happened. But who knows? Maybe I wouldn't be here today. Other onset mishaps would occur later in the creation of the Poltergeist film franchise. During the filming of Poltergeist 2 in 1985, actor Will Sampson, who played the Native American shaman Taylor, was so convinced that there were dark spirits present on the set that he performed a ritual, what some would later call an exorcism, to dispel them. There were also other strange events that occurred off the set. During the filming of the original movie, Jo Beth Williams said she would return to her apartment each evening after filming to discover that all the pictures on the walls had been tilted. She would fix them, but the next day would find them moved around again. The author James Kahn, who was writing the novel based on the film, had a lightning bolt strike his building just as he was finishing his manuscript. The front of his air conditioning unit flew off its housing and struck him in the back. 
He said immediately afterwards, the lights in the house turned back on and his video games, quote, started playing themselves, unquote. During the filming of the 2015 remake, director Gil Keenan said his rented house at the time definitely experienced a haunting. He reported seeing a female apparition. She was dressed all in black. Keenan also said that after he moved out, the owner of the house called him to ask if he had experienced anything strange there. It seemed that the owner now also suspected the house of being haunted. But the real rumors of a poltergeist curse began soon after the film's release, when one of its young stars was murdered. Dominique Ellen Dunn was born in 1959 in Santa Monica, California. Her mother Ellen, called Lenny, grew up in a wealthy ranching family, and her father Dominic was a writer and investigative journalist. He became a regular contributor for Vanity Fair magazine, covering many trials involving celebrities and high-profile figures, including O.J. Simpson and the Menendez brothers. Dominique had two older brothers, Alex and Griffin. Both she and Griffin would become actors. Dominique's first big acting break would occur when she was just 19 and was cast in the television movie Diary of a Teenage Hitchhiker. After that, she won roles on a couple of other television movies and several shows, including Lou Grant, Heart to Heart, and Fame. When she was cast as Dana Freeling in Poltergeist, it was her first feature film. She was only 21 years old and well on her way to a promising acting career. Poltergeist would earn almost $7 million in its opening weekend in June of 1982. It also became one of the biggest movies of the year when it was re-released for the Halloween season in October of that same year. In 1981, Dominique met 26-year-old John Sweeney at a party. Sweeney was a sous chef and assistant to Wolfgang Puck at the trendy Melrose Avenue restaurant Mom is On. Three weeks after they met, the couple moved in together. But Dominique's family and friends became aware of the problems in the relationship right away. Sweeney was very jealous and possessive, and while he could be polite and charming, he also had a hair-trigger temper. Dominic Dunn would write an in-depth article about his daughter, her murder, and the trial for Vanity Fair titled Justice, a father's account of the trial of his daughter's killer. In it, he recounts a story his son told him about an incident with Sweeney. Alex Dunn, Dominique, and John Sweeney were having dinner at a restaurant one night. Sweeney got up to use the restroom, and while he was gone, one of the restaurant's patrons recognized Dominique from her role in Poltergeist. Delighted at seeing the young actress, he came to her table to say hello and ask for her autograph. At that moment, John Sweeney returned. Enraged that this stranger was talking to his girlfriend, Sweeney, who stood six foot one inch tall and weighed 170 pounds, picked up the man and began shaking him and screaming at him until the other patrons were able to intervene. Alex said Sweeney's reaction was completely uncalled for and, quote, scary. Sweeney and Dominique began having frequent arguments about his jealousy. It's unknown how often he became violent during their relationship, but a few serious incidents were either witnessed by others or documented. In late August 1982, during an argument, Sweeney grabbed Dominique by the hair and threw her down. The attack was so vicious that clumps of her hair were pulled from her head. Dominique escaped and went directly to her mother's home. Sweeney followed her and began banging on all the doors and windows, demanding to be let in. 
Her mother, Lenny Griffin, said that Dominique was so terrified she lay on the floor in a fetal position. After that attack, Sweeney cried and begged and swore to his girlfriend that he would never hurt her again. He was persistent and wouldn't leave her alone until she finally relented and returned to him. But just one month later, he again became enraged and beat Dominique. On September 26, in a fit of jealous anger, Sweeney grabbed his petite girlfriend by the throat, threw her to the ground, and began to strangle her. A friend who was staying with the couple heard Dominique gagging and ran to the room. Sweeney had let her go when he heard the friend coming, and when Dominique told her friend that Sweeney had tried to kill her, he denied it. Sweeney then demanded she come back to bed. She pretended to do so, but climbed out of the bathroom window and jumped in her car to escape. Hearing the engine start, Sweeney ran out of the house and jumped on the hood of Dominique's car. She stopped the car, and Sweeney jumped off, but as soon as he did so, she quickly drove away and to safety. A few days later, Dominique was filming an episode of Hill Street Blues, where she played the role of an abuse victim. She was so bruised and battered by Sweeney that no makeup was required. All the bruises you see on her in the episode are real. After her last attack by Sweeney, Dominique refused to return to him. He continued to badger her into coming back, but she was adamant. Later, at trial, a letter she wrote to Sweeney would be read by the prosecutor. In it, you can hear how afraid of Sweeney she was and how trapped she felt by him during their relationship. In part, it reads, We have to be two individuals to work together as a couple. I am not permitted to do enough things on my own. Why must you be part of everything I do? Why do you want to come to my writing lessons and my acting classes? Why are you jealous of every scene partner I have? Why must you know the name of every person I come into contact with? You go crazy over my rehearsals. You insist on going to work with me when I have told you that it makes me nervous. Your paranoia is overboard. You do not love me. You are obsessed with me. The person you think you love is not me at all. It is someone you have made up in your head. I'm the person who makes you angry, who you fight with sometimes. I think we only fight when images of me fade away and you are faced with the real me. That's why arguments erupt out of nowhere. The whole thing has made me realize how scared I am of you, and I don't mean just physically. I'm afraid of the next time you're going to have another mood swing. When we are good, we are great, but when we are bad, we are horrendous. The bad outweighs the good. On October 30th, 1982, five weeks after Dominique left him, Sweeney stopped trying to convince his ex-girlfriend to take him back. He made his decision. After drinking two martinis at Mamazon, he walked to her house around 8.30 p.m. Dominique was home that evening running lines with her co-star. She had been cast in a new miniseries called V. She and David Packer were in the living room rehearsing when Sweeney arrived and began banging on her door. She refused to unlock it, but Sweeney made a scene and demanded she come back outside and talk to him. Dominique agreed to step out on the porch. She told Packer to stay inside. Packer said he heard an argument begin right away. Then he heard, quote, two screams, slapping sounds, and a thud, unquote. He immediately phoned the police, but was told by the dispatcher that where he was calling from was outside their jurisdiction. Packer was so terrified by the sounds of the enraged man outside the door that he called a friend and said if he was found dead, John Sweeney was responsible. Packer tried to flee out of the back door, but as he emerged, 
he saw Sweeney in the driveway, kneeling over Dominique. Sweeney told the frightened young man to call the police. When the police arrived, the first officer on the scene reported that Sweeney threw his hands up in the air and stated, I blew it. I killed her. I didn't think I choked her that hard, but I don't know. I just kept choking her. I lost my temper and blew it again. As he was being put in handcuffs, Sweeney told officers that he had tried to kill himself by swallowing a bottle of pills. However, no pills or pill bottle was found, and Sweeney seemed perfectly fine. Dominique Dunn was rushed to Cedar sinai Hospital, but there was no sign of brain activity. The medical examiner would later determine that her oxygen supply had been cut off for between four to six minutes as Sweeney choked the life out of her. Her parents and siblings rushed to her side, but she never regained consciousness. After five days, they made the heartbreaking decision to remove her from life support. Her mother, who suffered from multiple sclerosis and was wheelchair-bound, asked that her daughter's organs be harvested for donation. She died on November 4, 1982, 19 days before she would have turned 23 years old. Her kidneys were transplanted into two patients who'd been awaiting an organ transplant for some time. Her heart was sent to San Francisco for another life-saving operation. Prosecutors charged John Sweeney with the first-degree murder of Dominique Dunn. He pled not guilty. He was assigned a public defender, but the owner of Mamezon, Patrick Terrell, offered the services of Joseph Shapiro, the restaurant's legal counsel, to assist at trial. From the beginning, you would have thought that John Sweeney had been the actor. He was brought into the courtroom each day wearing a somber black suit and carrying a Bible. Dominic Dunn would report that he never saw Sweeney open the Bible and that it was simply used as a prop to make him seem more sympathetic to the court. He would weep frequently in front of the jury. In contrast, the defense would ask for and be granted the condition that if any of Dominique's family or friends in the courtroom exhibited any sign of emotion, crying, or any type of outburst in front of the jury, that they be removed. One day, the defense even pointed out that one of Dominique's brothers was becoming weepy-eyed during testimony, and they argued that this was in violation of the order. Sweeney's attorney even attempted to have Dominique's wheelchair-bound mother banned from the courtroom, saying that it would elicit sympathy from the jury, which would be prejudicial to his client. What a douche. As for the judge, Burton Katz was described as an attention seeker who was easily swayed by flattery. Judge Katz was fairly young for a judge, only in his 40s, but he'd already made a name for himself in the district attorney's office when he prosecuted two members of the Manson family, Bruce Davis and Steve Clem Grogan, for the murders of Shorty Shea and Gary Hinman in 1970. He'd been appointed to the Superior Court of California in 1981. He enjoyed presiding over high-profile cases like Dominique Dunn's murder trial. Dominique's family was not impressed with Judge Katz from the beginning. For one thing, Dominic Dunn would say that the judge continually mispronounced his daughter's name, calling her Dominic instead of Dominique. Secondly, he seemed to be buying Sweeney's theatrics, the crying and Bible-carrying hook, line, and sinker. Once, the judge allowed Sweeney extra time before returning back to the courtroom because, his attorney said, 
He was weeping in the hallway as a result of the harassment he was receiving from other inmates. Perhaps sensing that the Duns were not his fans, Judge Katz's rulings seemed to side with the defense much more often, and he showed little sympathy for the victim or her family during the trial. The prosecution called one of Sweeney's ex-girlfriends as a witness. Lillian Pierce had dated him for two years and testified that she had been assaulted by Sweeney at least 10 times and hospitalized twice, once for four days and another time for six. She'd received a broken nose and a punctured lung, among other serious injuries, after being beaten by John Sweeney, and she was still terrified of him. All of this testimony was heard without the jury present. Judge Katz wanted to hear from her outside of the jury's presence to determine whether her testimony was admissible or not. While Pierce was testifying about the abuse, Sweeney suddenly jumped up from his seat at the defense table and made a beeline towards the rear door of the courtroom that leads into the holding area and the judge's chamber. Both the court clerk and the witness let out a scream of alarm. The judge and the clerk set off silent alarms, while the bailiff leaped into action and tackled Sweeney, knocking him to the floor. He was wrestled back to his seat and handcuffed to the chair. Once he realized he wasn't going anywhere, Sweeney began to sob and apologize to the judge. Incredibly, the judge showed sympathy towards the out-of-control and dangerous defendant, saying, We know what a strain you are under, Mr. Sweeney. Dominique's parents could only stare incredulously at these ridiculous proceedings. After Sweeney's outburst, Dominic Dunn was convinced that he was being sedated before he came into court. He stared glassy-eyed and sat limply in his chair for the remainder of the trial. Lenny Griffin took the stand also out of the presence of the jury, to testify about the time her daughter had been beaten by Sweeney and arrived at her mother's home bruised and battered and with clumps of her hair missing. Judge Katz would ultimately decide that neither the testimony of Sweeney's ex-girlfriend or Dominique's mother would be allowed to be heard by the jury. He said it would be too prejudicial. The jury would never hear about Sweeney's history of violence against women. The defense's strategy was to paint Sweeney as a blue-collar guy who found himself over his head with the Beverly Hills crowd, painting Dominique as spoiled and uncaring. They also accused Lillian Pierce of being a drunk and a drug addict. Sweeney's attorney also told the jury that Dominique Dunn had found herself pregnant and had an abortion during the time she was in a relationship with Sweeney. This, they claimed, is what caused their client to become so upset and had led to the, quote, argument five weeks before Dominique's death. Not one of Dominique's friends or family members had ever heard about a pregnancy, and it was pure hearsay, but the judge allowed it in. In fact, the judge agreed with the defense that all statements made by Dominique to her friends, family, agent, fellow actors, etc., regarding her fear of Sweeney in the five weeks leading up to her murder, was inadmissible as hearsay and would not be allowed in as evidence. Sweeney himself took the stand and behaved politely and courteously throughout his testimony. He knew what was at stake. He told the jury that he and Dominique had had a wonderful relationship and denied that he had ever beaten her before the night she was murdered. He said that he'd only tried to, quote, restrain her as she was trying to leave, unquote. He admitted that she had left him and changed the locks, but insisted that she had agreed to reconcile with him something that her family and friends knew to be patently untrue. He said the fact that she had lied to him and refused to let him in on October 30th was the reason he'd snapped. He also said he didn't remember choking her and that he must have blacked out. 
Sweeney insisted he'd taken pills to try and kill himself immediately after he saw what he'd done, but the first officers on the scene refuted this. The prosecution had charged Sweeney with first-degree murder, but at the conclusion of the state's case, the judge ruled that the jury could only consider the charges of manslaughter and second-degree murder. He, in effect, acquitted Sweeney of the first-degree murder charge. The judge agreed with the defense that there was no premeditation or deliberation in this crime. The prosecution argued that the jury should decide whether or not this was the case, but the judge stood firm. After eight days of deliberation, the jury returned with its verdict. John Sweeney was found not guilty of second-degree murder, but guilty of voluntary manslaughter. They also charged him with misdemeanor assault for the attack on Dominique the night she fled their home in September. Even though this verdict seemed woefully inadequate for the crime, Sweeney's attorney told the press that he would ask that his client be sentenced only to probation. Dominique's family, of course, was devastated by the verdict. Before leaving the courtroom, Dominic Dunn pointed a finger at the judge and told him that justice had not been served in his courtroom, exclaiming, You have withheld important evidence from this jury about this man's history of violence against women. As soon as the trial was over, the media reported Lillian Pierce's testimony about being abused by Sweeney. After the public learned about Dominique's murderer's past history of violence, they were as outraged as her family. The judge was raked over the coals by the media. A poll was reported in the newspapers that rated Burton Katz as one of the worst judges in California. Most likely as a response to all the bad press, at the sentencing hearing six weeks later, the judge threw the jury under the bus saying he was appalled by the juror's decision to only charge Sweeney for misdemeanor assault for the first attack. He said, quote, The jury came back, I don't understand for the life of me, with simple assault, thus taking away the sentencing parameters that I might have on felony assault. However, the jury foreman would later be interviewed and would say that he and his fellow jurors found the judge's instructions regarding deciding between second-degree murder, voluntary manslaughter, and involuntary manslaughter incomprehensible. He said that the jury was deadlocked because of what they considered ambiguous instructions. They had asked the judge four times to please clarify them. Each time, the judge sent word back to the jury that the answer to their questions was in his original instructions and he would elaborate no further. But now at sentencing, the judge blamed the jury for tying his hands and called the verdict anemic and pathetically inadequate. Although he had allowed Sweeney's attorneys to present the ludicrous heat of passion defense, he now mocked it and rendered a scathing statement probably meant to placate his critics. Quote, I will state on the record that I believe this is a murder. I believe that Sweeney is a murderer and not a manslaughterer. Manslaughterer? that a word? This is a killing with malice, Judge Katz said. This man held on to this young, vulnerable, beautiful, warm human being that had everything to live for with his hands. He had to have known that as she was flailing to get oxygen, that the process of death was displacing the process of life, unquote. He then turned to John Sweeney and said, you knew of your capacity for uncontrolled violence. You knew you hurt Dominique badly with your own hands and that you nearly choked her into unconsciousness on September 26. You were in a rage because your fragile ego could not accept the final rejection. But it was too late to change the outcome, and the judge could only sentence Sweeney to six and a half years for the crime of manslaughter. 
Because of the amount of time Sweeney had already served behind bars while awaiting trial, he would be eligible for release in just two and a half years. He was sent to a medium security prison in Chino, California. After serving only three years, he was paroled. But the Duns were not going to let their daughter's murder be swept under the rug, nor were they going to allow her murderer to live his life as if nothing had happened. Soon after Sweeney was paroled, he was hired as a chef at one of L.A.'s hottest restaurants, The Chronicle in Santa Monica. Dominique's mother Lenny and her brother Griffin stood outside the restaurant handing out flyers that read, The food you will eat tonight was cooked by the hands that killed Dominique Dunn. Sweeney eventually quit the restaurant and moved out of Los Angeles. The owner of Ma Maison, Patrick Terrell, who had paid for Sweeney's legal defense, was inundated with protesters who picketed his restaurants. He lost a large percentage of his customers as a result. Judge Burton Katz was transferred to preside over juvenile court in Silmar, California. Lenny Griffin became an advocate for crime victims after the murder of her daughter. She first worked with the organization Parents of Murdered Children and later founded Justice for Homicide Victims. She was honored for her work with victims and their families by President George H.W. Bush. She died on her ranch in Nogales, Arizona in 1997. Dominic Dunn turned his attention to writing about crime and covered many high-profile trials for Vanity Fair. In 2008, at the age of 82, he reported on O.J. Simpson's second trial for kidnapping and armed robbery in Las Vegas. He vowed it would be his last trial. On August 29, 2009, Dunn died at the age of 83. In the mid-1990s, John Sweeney became engaged to a woman whose father happened to read an old article written by Dominic Dunn about his daughter's murder and trial. He called the writer to see if this might be the same John Sweeney who was engaged to his daughter. It was. Griffin Dunn called the woman and told her about John Sweeney's past and encouraged her to break off her engagement for her own safety. Sweeney accused the family of harassment. Dominic Dunn admitted that he had hired the famed private investigator Anthony Pelicano to keep tabs on Sweeney. As Dunn aged, he decided to discontinue having Sweeney tailed, but not before he discovered that his daughter's murderer had changed his name to John Mora and moved to the Pacific Northwest. Dominique Dunn's grave is located in Westwood Cemetery in Los Angeles. She is buried near one of her mother's best friends, another woman who died too young and tragically, Natalie Wood. The rumor regarding the poltergeist curse reemerged after the death of another one of its young actors, Heather O'Rourke. Only five years old at the time she was cast as Carol Ann Freeling in the first Poltergeist film, Heather went on to have recurring roles in the television series Happy Days and Webster. She reprised her role as Carol Ann in the sequel Poltergeist II, The Other Side, in 1986, and once again in Poltergeist III in 1988. Heather fell ill in 1987 with a chronic fever and later swelling in her feet. She was diagnosed with the flu, but the illness lingered. Finally, another doctor would diagnose Heather with a parasitic illness called Giardia. She was prescribed medication and her condition improved. When her parents discovered the swelling in her feet, she returned to the hospital. While the parasite had cleared up, she was diagnosed with Crohn's disease 
a chronic inflammatory bowel disease. She was prescribed a steroid to reduce the inflammation just before Poltergeist 3 began filming. A side effect of the drug caused Heather's cheeks to appear puffy and swollen, which can be seen in the movie. On January 31, 1988, Heather became violently ill. The next morning, as her parents were preparing to leave for the hospital, she collapsed. She went into cardiac arrest and had to be airlifted to Children's Hospital in San Diego. She was rushed into emergency surgery, where it was discovered that she had an acute bowel obstruction caused by congenital stenosis of the intestine. She died as a result of cardiac arrest and septic shock. She was 12 years old. Her parents filed a wrongful death lawsuit because of the misdiagnosis. If the bowel obstruction had been found, it could have been treated surgically, and she most likely would have survived, according to the suit. The matter was eventually settled out of court for an undisclosed sum. A body double was used for Heather in the final scenes of Poltergeist 3. The movie was released four months after her death, and publicity for the film was minimized to avoid criticism that the studio was profiting off the tragedy. The Poltergeist franchise had experienced two tragic deaths in just six short years, but the curse was far from over. Richard Lawson already had many acting credits under his belt when he was cast as paranormal investigator Ryan in the first Poltergeist movie. He'd already had roles in several TV series including Kojak, Shaft, Medical Center, and The Streets of San Francisco in the 1970s. He had also been cast in the miniseries V, the same series Dominique Dunn was rehearsing for at the time of her murder. Richard Lawson's face was familiar to many for his many acting roles. One person who recognized him was a flight attendant on a U.S. air flight he boarded on March 22, 1992. She was excited to see the actor and offered to bump him up to a first-class seat, which he happily accepted. This may have been the lucky break that saved Lawson's life when Flight 405, bound for Cleveland, crashed on that Sunday night, killing 27 passengers. Lawson, who at the time was playing a recurring character on the soap All My Children, also volunteered his time as a drug counselor for the National Basketball Association. He had taken the flight out of New York's LaGuardia Airport to meet with some Cleveland Cavaliers players. Originally scheduled to leave the following day, he'd decided to depart a day early, since a snowstorm was expected overnight. As the plane prepared for takeoff, snow and sleet began to fall. Maintenance workers were called to de-ice the plane, but it would be nearly a half an hour before they were finally cleared for takeoff. Many of the passengers would later say they had an eerie feeling as they waited for their flight to leave. Some cinched their seatbelts tighter, and one woman said she curled up in her chair, already preparing herself for a crash landing. As the plane just started liftoff, it turned sharply to the left. It then seemed to try to right itself, but suddenly, it bounced back down to the ground hard, and the plane began to flip. I heard ground being chewed up, Lawson said. The whole world was turning over in slow motion. Passengers began to scream, although Lawson said he didn't hear anything at that time except the sickening screeching of metal on metal. The airplane then broke up into pieces and dropped into the bay. The next thing I knew, I was underwater, Lawson said. For a brief moment, he was convinced he would die. I was thinking, I know that I'm dying. Something in my mind said, just relax into this death. Die peacefully. Then another part of me said, forget that. Try to get out of there, man. 
I felt the body of the man next to me struggling against mine. I grabbed my buckle and finally undid it, and a surge of adrenaline came over me. I pushed everything aside, and I finally breathed air, Lawson told a reporter for the New York Times. He saw flames shooting from the plane behind him, so to save himself, he jumped into the water. It was icy cold, but luckily he was close to shore, and the water was only waist-high. He waded to the shore, where a few other survivors were already gathered. He only received minor scrapes and bruises, and was released from the hospital the next day. He was one of only 24 survivors. He later found out that at least one passenger in the row he was originally assigned to on the plane had died in the crash. An investigation determined that the plane had been de-iced improperly. That and pilot error upon takeoff had caused the deadly crash. Lawson continues to have a successful acting career mostly in television, but also in movies like How Stella Got Her Groove Back and Guess Who, starring Bernie Mac. He currently plays Earl Sullivan on the television series In Contempt, a show that explores injustice in the American legal system. He is married to Tina Knowles, the mother of Beyonce and Solange Knowles. While the poltergeist curse was thwarted by a friendly flight attendant, the subject of the last hill in this episode would not be so lucky. Louis Byron Perriman, simply called Lou by those who knew him, was born in 1941 in Texas. He grew up in Austin as a young man and fell into acting. He was one of the pioneers of the emerging Austin independent film industry in the 1960s and 70s. In 1978, he was cast in his first feature film, The Whole Shootin' Match. That role was followed by others in The Blues Brothers, Fast Money, and then Poltergeist in 1982 where he played a small role as a construction worker named Pugsley. He would continue to be in demand as a character actor in other films, including The Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Boys Don't Cry. Because of his work in what would become two classic horror films, Poltergeist and Texas Chainsaws 1 and 2, he would later be invited to attend horror movie festivals and conventions to meet fans and sign autographs. Perriman was outside tending to his front lawn at his home in Austin, Texas, on April 1, 2009, when he was approached by Seth Christopher Tatum, a man who was a stranger to him. They struck up a friendly conversation before Perriman returned inside his house. Tatum, 28, had previous convictions for burglary and robbery, and also a history of mental illness. In 2006, he was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and polysubstance abuse. He was abusing over three psychoactive substances at the time. Tatum spent three years in prison before moving back to his mother's house in Austin in 2009. Tatum's mother, Joan, told the Austin American Statesman that her son had stopped taking his medication a few weeks after being released from prison. His symptoms of bipolar disorder increased in March, and Tatum asked his mother to admit him to the hospital on March 31st. She said she had not done as he asked, because they could not afford to pay for the hospital stay. At this time, Tatum was living in the home with his mother and her boyfriend, Carl Drake. On April 1st, one day after Tatum asked to be taken to the hospital, he attacked Drake with a garden shears and a fireplace poker as the man sat in the bathroom. Drake received a fractured skull. Tatum's mother didn't know what had precipitated the attack. Tatum then left on foot from his mother's house. He came upon Lou Perriman, who lived two miles away. He approached the man randomly after seeing him outside in his yard. After Perriman went inside the house, 
Tatum followed him inside. He was carrying an axe. As Perryman sat at his computer, Tatum approached him from behind and swung the axe down on his head, striking him about ten times and killing him. He then fled in Tatum's car. The next day, Tatum approached a sheriff's deputy, told him that the car he was driving was stolen, and that he'd killed the man who owned it. In 2011, Seth Tatum was sentenced to life in prison for the murder of Lou Perriman. Perriman's friend, Tyson McLeod, would say the irony was that his friend, quote, loved human beings, he loved people, he probably would have felt sorry for this lonesome son of a bitch that killed him, unquote. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime, and that will conclude the series Cursed Hollywood. I gave you a horror franchise curse, and it's not even Halloween yet. You're welcome. If you want to get a sneak peek into my next series, you can do that by becoming a Patreon supporter. For just $2 a month, you will get that, along with bonus content and more. Become a super fan at the $5 level, and you'll get all that, plus a premium gift sent to you, as well as a bonus video each month. Go to patreon.com slash onceuponacrime for more info. Finally, I hope you'll subscribe to my true crime discussion podcast, Let's Talk About True Crime, where me and my guests discuss what's new and trending in true crime. This week, we'll be discussing an important story that has affected not only Once Upon a Crime, but the true crime podcasting community as a whole, the crime junkie plagiarism scandal. But you'll only hear that discussion on Let's Talk About True Crime, So subscribe today so you don't miss it. I've included a link in the show notes. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Additional research for this episode was done by Lorena Garcia. Until next time, be good to one another.